All right, so I just want to echo uh, what Nate was saying. Um, if you're new here, I really want to welcome you. It can be pretty intimidating coming into a new space. Uh, maybe you haven't been in church for many years. Maybe this morning is the first time that you've come back for a long time, and it can be quite scary, and you're like, what are they singing about, and why are people going up the front, and why are they reading things and saying things, and there's a whole bunch of different things which might be going through your head. We're not that weird. Some people are slightly on the weird spectrum, but mostly we're not that strange. Um, We want to welcome you and just say, applaud your courage. Thanks for coming. Be comfortable, as comfortable as you can be with us, and we'll be out of here by just after um, 11, and we'll have coffee and tea, and you can get that with us just now, and um, enjoy it with us. So turn with me, if you would, to Ezra chapter 9. Ezra's one of the books from the Old Testament that we've been engaging with, Ezra and Nehemiah, and we're going to continue what we've been talking about this morning. Um, If you have just joined us, or if you've missed some of the series, I'll do a little bit of catch-up for you, just so you're orientated. While you turn there, Ezra chapter 9, we're going to read from verse 5. Um, back in week two, this, I think we're in week six now, week six or somewhere around there. But back in week two, we, and you can actually go and get the podcast. We've got podcasts, One Hope Church, or you can get the, go on the website, download the Audible, or you can even get the um, video. They even have videos that you can download. Isn't that cool? Um, so we asked this question in week two, is God forever faithful? That was the big kind of question in week two. Is God faithful over the long haul in my life. And then we mused together in that week about how unfaithful we are as a people. And so we ended up asking this question, is God faithful even when I sin? Is God faithful in my sin? Do you remember this, those of you who were here? Hopefully. If you don't, just shout yes anyway, so it encourages the preacher, it'd be great to know. But to answer those questions, is God faithful? Is God faithful over the long haul? Is God faithful in my sin? We went and looked at how powerfully Ezra and Nehemiah reaches back into the Exodus story, told in the book of Exodus and the book of Numbers. And we went and saw how God was effectively, through the language of Ezra and Nehemiah, inviting this people again into a new kind of Exodus. A new exodus, and it's all over the language in Ezra, and it just gets more and more. The volume like turns up as you go through the book, and you see things like in the book of Exodus, where um, where Moses said to the people, tell your neighbors um, that we're leaving, and they give gold and silver and all sorts of other stuff, and they give it to you, and so it says in Exodus, they plundered them. But now we see in Ezra that the writer of Ezra says that the Persian king, said to them, ask your neighbors and, and take gold. And they did exactly the same thing. And there's, there's just tons and tons of similarities. And I'm not going to re-preach that preach. Like I said, you can, go and, you can go and get it. But what it showed us so clearly is that 900 years after the Exodus, God is faithfully again bringing back a people who we looked at in the book of Jeremiah had turned and been unfaithful to him. In their sin, God is beautifully bringing them back and inviting them into this new exodus. You with me so far? This is how I said it in week two. And God in his forever faithfulness is inviting the exiles and then us to see themselves as a part of a new redemptive chapter in the biblical story. When any objective commentator would say that God has every reason to abandon Israel and us in our sin, he never does. To this day, he never does. 
Right, now I don't want to spend time, like I said, reconvincing you about what we've already preached about. You can go and grab that on the podcast. But another very obvious one that we just start off with this morning is that Ezra himself, who's writing this, deeply believes that they've been placed on a new exodus. And one of the places that we see this, there's multiple places again, but one of the ones that just really struck me this week was Ezra 8.31. And I was looking at this, this oddity of the dates that they left. So the dates that the, that the exodus went out from Egypt corresponds to within three days to the exact date that Ezra decided that they should leave Babylon. Strange coincidence? Don't you think maybe Ezra is reenacting, even thoughtfully thinking through, this is how we're going to do it? And he takes the people from Babylon, just like Egypt, back into the new land on the exact same week. You can go and see that in Ezra 8.31 and Numbers 33. But while everything up to this point has been, wow, awesome, God is God is inviting the Israelites and, and inviting us through Jesus Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit. He's inviting us onto this new exodus with him. Everything's been amazing. Everything's been uh, beautiful. But then suddenly we, we see that th- that's not the only repeating pattern in the story. So that the pattern of God's faithfulness and how awesome he is 900 years later and now a few thousand years later, we see that there's something else That's repeating in the story. So I want you to look for it as we read it together this morning, Ezra chapter 9. I want you to see if you can see what else is repeating in the story. So a little bit of context here, if you've missed the last few weeks, is that Ezra has just returned with the second wave of exiles to find that the leaders and the people after 60 years from when Zerubbabel first brought the people out, the first wave, the people have started worshipping other gods, marrying foreign women, worshipping their gods with them, and some of the complexity that Bates spoke beautifully about last week. And this is now Ezra's prayer. As he gets there and he finds out that this is happening, this is his prayer, verse 5. Then... At the evening sacrifice, I, speaking about Ezra, rose from my self-abasement, is a fancy word for, for fasting, with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift up my face to you. Do you remember that this guy has just arrived? He's just arrived. He's not the one who's married the foreign woman and worshiping the foreign gods. But don't you love how he starts off with his ownership? I am too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached up to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors, pointing back to Egypt, pointing back to kings and Samuel and all ancestors that have gone before them. Until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hand of foreign kings as it is today. But now, For a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in His sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. Can you hear the echo of, is our God faithful? 
Is our God faithful over the long haul? Is our God faithful? Is your God faithful in the midst of your terrible sin? One hope and visitors. Is God faithful in your sin? Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sights of the king of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And he has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, but now, our God, what can we say after all this? So even though you've been so gracious, even though you've been so kind, God, yet still I'm ashamed to lift my face to you because of what I found out today. Right now, what can we say after all of this? For we have forsaken the commands you gave through your servants, the prophets. Now skip down to verse 13. What has happened to us, says Ezra, is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and has given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Let's just close our eyes for a minute and pray as we read this text. Father, we ask you, as we come to this text in Ezra 9 and look at a few other verses this morning, Would your word come alive inside of us, God? Some of us are bored sitting here. Some of us would rather be somewhere else. We have distractions in our mind vying for our attention. We have something on this afternoon or something to watch on TV or some meal to eat or some friend to see or maybe it's a hardship going on in our hearts which is distracting us, Lord. And we want to ask that as we come to you that you give us the desire and the grace to submit our hearts to your word this morning. Father, you know where each and every person sits, what's going on in their minds, what's going on in their hearts, all the noise in the church system for them. And we ask that you'd come by your grace and reveal yourself, yourself to us, again in your word this morning. In the precious name of Jesus, we ask this. Amen. So do you, see the, do you see the repeating pattern? So the one pattern is that God is, is constantly taking his people on exodus, constantly wanting to redeem and dwell with his people. What's the other pattern? The other pattern, exactly, is the, I think that's what you're saying, is the sinfulness of the people. That's the other constant in the story, isn't it? God's constant in his faithfulness. People are constant in their sinfulness. They constantly, it's always this guilt. It's always, God, you've, you've been this and you've done this and you're so faithful, but God, not this again. We've gone back. And so kind of the, the overarching thought of this whole prayer that Nehemiah prays is, is, oh no, this is the overarching thought of his prayer. Oh no, we, we thought it was the new exodus. We just trekked 1,500 kilometers. We've just been on the road for four months. We left on the same date as the exodus. We're reenacting this, this great freedom that's this being set free. And we, we're on the path. Oh no, we thought it was a brand new kind of exodus. Not this again. 
Not the sinfulness again, God. We thought it would be different this time. This time we have the temple again. We've rebuilt it. God, this time we have Ezra. We have a Bible teacher. He's going to take us through the Torah and and teach us about community. None of this is what we were expecting, God. Not this again. And then somewhere in that thought process, and you can see it, we'll get there in a moment, in the thought process of Ezra, it goes from, oh no, uh, this is not what we thought about the new Exodus. Somewhere along there it goes to, Oh no, we, we are like the Exodus people. God's not just, this, is, this Exodus is not just not happening. We're like those people. We're like the wilderness people who disobeyed God and turned away from God. And so I love, I love the humility in this prayer. And we'll speak about that later when we close. But I love the progression in, in this text. When you look at verse 7 and, and Ezra says, from the days of our, our ancestors until now. And there's kind of this general guilt. There's like, God, we've we, generally as a nation of Israel, we've, we've not followed you. Our guilt has been great. And then there's this like aha moment for Ezra in verse 10. But now... Now we're not talking about what happened with them anymore. That was all the stuff they did. But now, now we're talking about now, our God, what can we say? Verse 10. For we have forsaken the commands. Now we're not talking about Exodus, wilderness people, disobeying God and building balls and saying, I wish I could go back to Egypt and eat the meat again. Not those people. Now it's us. Now it's Ezra saying, we have done this. And then verse 13 is so beautiful as you see how Ezra in his revelation owns their sin. Verse 13, what has happened to us is not a result of the guilt and you know, the kings and Samuel and all these guys and what they did. No, no, what, what happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve. Even there, the grace. Oh no, this is not what we expected. Oh, double no, even worse. We're those people. We're the Exodus generation. We have turned away from God. So then that leads to the obvious question, well, it's nice to read ourselves into the story when we think about the Exodus. And wow, God's going to take us on Exodus. Awesome, we're in. But what about when we read some of the more difficult parts of the story? What about us today? We've spoken about how through Jesus Christ we've been invited into a new Exodus story. You think about it. Freedom from slavery. It's the Exodus. I was chatting with Riley who does a lot of uh, theology reading. And she was saying that one of, the, one of the theologians she was reading has basically said that from Exodus the Bible is, is this repeating story of, of the Exodus. Which is what we've been talking about. This great play. If you've been here for those weeks, you'll know what I mean by that, by that great play. But we've spoken about how we set free from slavery, just like the Exodus. We released from Pharaoh. The devil can't come and go, knock, 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 pay up. We're free. He still makes a big noise and he shouts over our lives and he tries to intimidate us to pay up. But ultimately, we're free from Pharaoh. We're free from the evil one. We've passed through the waters of baptism, like the, like the baptism of the, of the Israelites going through the Red Sea. There's so many parallels, but there's, there's hope and there's joy and there's freedom. And in that, there's a temptation for you and I this morning to look back on these people and think, what fools? Have you ever thought that reading the Old Testament? I have many, many times. What fools, guys? I mean, can't you remember what God has just done for you? 
Like he's just destroyed Pharaoh. I mean, you saw them drowning in the ocean. You saw Pharaoh's army being destroyed. And now like three, four, five days later, you're grumbling and complaining. God's feeding you with manna from heaven, for goodness sake. There's like there's a supermarket that falls from heaven. And, you, and, you const- and we look at them with judgment, don't we? You know, if, if we would have been there, Johannes, if you and I, if we had been there, we would not have responded like this. That's what goes on in our hearts, right? How ungrateful are you people? How ungrateful are you that after all that God has done, you still can't obey Him? And yet somehow, somehow is honesty in our honest moments, I think we see ourselves extremely clearly in this story. I don't think we see ourselves in the detail of the story. Like, I personally have never erected an a, um, altar to Baal in my backyard and sacrificed goats on it. I haven't done that. Or some of the... <laughs> what was that? You do that in Honor Papa Chayberg, what? But certainly, I see myself in the heart of this. Don't you? Don't you see yourself in the hearts of these people? Do you know that old hymn? We're going to actually, I think we're going to sing it, I think, at the end this morning. But as we sit here this morning, I hope you're getting a little bit less comfortable in your chair. I hope we're beginning to see ourselves in the story. I think of this hymn and it resonates, it should resonate with every honest heart in the room today. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Daily I have to be tied to grace. Let thy goodness like a fetter. If you don't know that old English word, it's like a chain. So let your goodness like a chain bind my wandering heart to thee. Why should God have to bind us to him with his goodness? Because I, Paul, am prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. Even though I know I love you so much, God, how, how much I love to walk away. Here's my heart, Lord. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above is the hymnist's honest, open prayer as he writes this and pens this hymn. Maybe you're still struggling to see yourself in the story, but maybe it's helpful to think back to when we came to know Christ and we we remember thinking like in that moment of great joy of salvation, we're like, yes, I'm never going to sin again, ever. I'm just like, Jesus has done this, is amazing, I'm never going to. Do you remember that moment, that great joy? Hopefully you had a moment like that, if you've come to know Christ. And then some years later, you're so frustrated with your inability to, to untangle your life from the web of sin. And you're like, but the scripture says that I'm free, but I don't feel free, and I'm living in light, but I feel like I'm still so entangled in darkness. Anyone else? Just me? Or maybe you say, well, yeah, Paul, like you, I don't worship Baal and erect an altar in the backyard. But, you know, we walk into each other's homes and there's evidence of our idols all over the place. In our garages and in our stuff and in what we worship, the TV. I remember that episode of Friends where Chandler walks into a house and there's no TV. I think it's Chandler. Walks into a house and there's no TV and he says, well, what do you point the furniture at? What do you do when there's no TV in the lounge? How do you set it up? 
Maybe the, maybe the idol worship is hanging on the wall. And it's pictures of our children or pictures of our grandchildren. I know this is off limits for some of you, but that can be idols in our hearts. We can have that above God. Or maybe, maybe the place to go and find our, di- our, our idol is in our diary. And we look at how much time we give to our career. It's a great example. And here's another one. What about the time we give to keeping our bodies conditioned? Do you know that can become an idol? That we spend so much time honing our, our biceps and our whatever else you want to hone that you don't prioritize God in your life? See, somewhere, I'm hoping that somewhere in your spiritual journey, if it hasn't happened, maybe by God's grace, He does it in your life today. Somewhere we have this oh no moment. We are just like the Ezra people who are just like the Exodus people. And we are prone to turn from God. We are prone to the same sinfulness. Now, do you agree with that? Do you agree? Because I think that culturally, I think that this is a pretty hard swallow. There's major objections to this. So we're actually going to spend the rest of our time just looking at two cultural big objections here. which Some of them are very subtle. And some of them, I think, are just awash. Like every day, there's just subtle attacks in these two areas in, in a Christian's life. So I'm going to articulate two of them after I have a sip of water. And then we're going to talk through them, and then we'll close just now. So, number one, here's the Christian standpoint that I've been just trying to articulate through the book of Ezra this morning. is this, we live in another wilderness generation. We live in a generation who's turned away from God. We live in a generation that have rejected God, and here's the part where it gets difficult, and stand rightly condemned before God. We'll take a verse like Romans 3.23, and we'll quote it, For all have sinned. And then I'll say to you, say it with me, All, all have sinned. Yes, we have, all of us. And fall short of the glory of God. Now, is that what you're being told day after day in the world? Is that what you're being told when you watch TV, when you go into your workplace? Because I'm being told this. We are essentially good people. Not all have sinned and fall far short of the glory of God. What we're being told day in and day out is we're essentially good people, and it's implied that God ought to kind of cut us a bit of slack and treat us as such. We're actually good people. Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, is seriously uncomfortable listening for our modern ears. We get taught over and over that we're good people, trying our best, we have great intentions, and just occasionally we do a few bad things. But essentially, at the core, we're good. So the temptation is to look at Ezra 9 and multiple other scriptures and to think, come on God, give these guys a break. They've just traveled thousands of kilometers on this new Exodus thing, which is your idea anyway, and like, give them a break. They're trying to rebuild your holy city. They've rebuilt your temple. Aren't they doing your work? Aren't they working for you? These guys have been subjected to extremely difficult times. As Bates was saying last week, economically, um, in society, these are good guys, Lord. They might have done one or two bad things, but God, you should really cut them some slack. And we treat God like a, an expectant father who has never seen anything that's good in us. And you know, you just cut that child some slack, God. 
And so the world says, off the back of this, and Christians are tempted to agree that we are actually not like the wilderness generation. That we've somehow grown out of that, or now we're a more caring society. We're democratic, for goodness sake. We're not like these guys. What they're trying to tell us year after year is that we haven't really turned away from God. Maybe like occasionally, like a little occasion, we have a bad moment, but you know, by, by and large, just look at, look at the stuff we're doing, you know, God, look. We're looking after, you know, some poor people. Just last week, I gave like five rand to the car guard, Lord. Am I not essentially good? You know, this is how we think. As, subtly as, as subtle as, as it might be, or as silly as I might be making it in that moment, I think deep down, we don't realize how much this washes over us and how much we begin to believe. Yeah, actually, I, I am. God, quite a good guy. And then this leads to the second one, which is the Christian standpoint on the second one is, is this. There's only one way that leads to salvation. How offensive is that to our culture? There's one way. And the way you're doing it is, is not that one way. So I'm sorry, but that's not the right. Who are you to tell me that? Who gives you truth? Does this ring any bells for anybody? You know, not all roads lead to Rome is what we've got to say. We're saying, hang on, hang on. No, there's one Christ. There's one way. He's the one who explicitly said, no one comes to the Father except through me. But the world over and over and over and over again is telling us, no, there's lots of roads. God's going to just graciously look on people and he's going to say, oh, you know what? You were a Muslim, but you tried so hard and you did such good stuff. You're okay. And you were this type of person or whatever it may be. And so the Christian standpoint is that not all people are good. No one is good. Not one. That people with sincere intentions and good lives and happy marriages are not invited into salvation. And this is the part where it gets really hard, is that some of them, like the sinner on the cross who had murdered or, or, or stolen or whatever it was he had done, and he was being justly crucified next to Jesus with his last, one of his last breaths is granted salvation, we see this whole group of people in our world, work colleagues and people at varsity with us and people in our family, and they're good people, and they try and do the best they can, and they've got good intentions, and we say, well, the Scripture says that they aren't going to be welcomed into salvation. And then we see the guy who's murdered someone or done some other terrible crime. And at the last minute, he, he pleads before God and puts his faith in him and he gets salvation. It's jarring, isn't it? And the world takes great umbrage with this. And the objection goes something like this. If we are essentially good with good intentions doesn't it stand to reason that we can approach God kind of as we like in other words lots of different roads we can approach God on, on some other route and he ought to be grateful for our efforts he will reward good people with good intentions guys in some way a part of me wishes that was true 
But it would be the most unloving thing in the whole wide world for me to pretend that that was the case. When scripture so clearly articulates that it's not. And actually, if you think about both of these objections, the one is, the one is that we're essentially good, and the other one is that we can essentially come to God in any way that we choose. If you really boil them down, what they, what they boil down to is spiritual pride. Right? If you think about it, spiritual pride, I, I'm not that bad. Actually, I'm okay. I, I'm a good person. And the more works I can do, and the more deeds I can do, or whatever it may be, or the less I shout at my kids or am patient with my wife, well, the, the better person I become. So I'm not that bad, which is a form of spiritual pride. And the other one, that I can approach God any way I like. It's like, God, who are you to tell me how I can approach you? And when we think about spiritual pride, it's exactly what made Satan fall from heaven. It's what Scripture says God actively opposes the proud. Now, if you're missing that, that's also known as not good. That's not helpful. You don't want this. This is one of the things. Now, here's the big question then. So if that's the case, right, if that's what I'm saying is true, that that's how Christians feel and the world says, no, that's wrong, who gets to decide? Who gets to decide? I mean, what is good enough? When, when have you been good enough? What is the acceptable path to salvation? Who gets to say which spoke in the wheel is the right one? Which is the road that actually leads to Rome? Who gets to say? Now, let me give you an analogy which I found helpful as I've been thinking about this. So, a business signs, some of you will be familiar with this world, a business signs a deal uh, for your company or my company or whatever's company to provide X, Y, and Z. They want X, Y, and Z products, right? So they sign an agreement that this company is going to deliver X, Y, and Z. It's quite a long-term agreement, so they decide there's going to be some check-in points along the way. We don't want to just get to the end and have a different product. So along the way, there's these check-in points. At the first check-in point that you get to, the company who's making the stuff comes to the company who's asked for the stuff and shows them these really awesome products, this amazing stuff that they've been doing. But the problem is, that none of these awesome products are actually what the company who commissioned it wanted. They didn't want these products. So the products are awesome, but they don't sit in that business meeting, if any of you have been in this kind of meeting, they don't sit there and say, you know what? We're so glad you tried. They don't. If you sit there as the company who came bringing those products and expect for them to applaud you and say, you know, we just, want to, we just want to say we love your creative intent on this project. We just love that you're coming up with a whole different product to what we actually wanted. Are they going to do that? I mean, <laughs> it's, it's ridiculous in the extreme, right? We want it the way we laid it out. We asked for a certain product, we signed a contract for a certain product, and we want that product. That's what we want. Now, who gets to decide what the product looks like? is the question we're trying to answer. Who gets to decide what salvation looks like? The company who commissioned the project, right? So who's that in our story? Who gets to decide what our salvation journey should look like? There's only one person who can decide what it looks like, right? The person who gives it. They're the only person authorized. The person who gives salvation to us is the only one who can say, this is how you receive salvation. 
Now, why, why do we stand back acting surprised that God is not blown away by our efforts when they are not in line with His clearly laid out plan in Scripture? I think one of the most, one of the most startling and frightening and beautiful, perhaps, verses in Scripture is Matthew 7, verse 21, when Jesus is speaking and He says, He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, we did incredible things for you, God. Look at my works. Look at what I did. Look at my prophecy. Then, Jesus speaking says, I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Isn't that a frightening verse? And what it's pointing to is that Jesus is saying there's a way. There's a path. It's a narrow path. And this is how you come to me. And I will not be pleased with the best intentions, with the most carefully thought through arguments. I'm not pleased with it. This is what I want. This is how. We get to respond, but there's this prevailing idea in our culture and even within our churches that we get to decide, that we, you and I, get to decide what God ought to be willing to accept for salvation. Just think about that statement for a moment and how absurd that is, that we get to decide what God ought to accept for salvation. And it's driven by a completely fabricated and scriptural, illiterate understanding of who God is. That God is God and I am not. It's the one verse says, so I will let my words be few. We wouldn't even accept this kind of logic in the most basic business contract. We wouldn't, and yet somehow it's being peddled as, as an alternative Christianity that, that we should accept somehow that God should be gracious or, or merciful and look on sincere intentions and, and stamp approval all over those people. Guys, I want to remind us this morning that we are messing with God, Almighty God. His ways are clearly laid out. Salvation path is not vague. We call ourselves an an intellectual town, an intellectual people, and yet I find us so lightly engaging with Scripture. We don't even know what's required of us so often. I want to encourage you. I don't want to to condemn you this morning. I want to encourage you. Get stuck into the Word of God so that we know what it is, how He can welcome people, because what happens practically if we don't is that we run around thinking, well, If that's a good person, well, we don't need to tell them about Jesus because, well, they're kind of going to go to heaven maybe anyway. Do you see how it begins to work out practically in our lives? Do you wonder why maybe we're not a very missional people? Why we don't share our faith? Why we don't really sit with people and say to them, I need you to get this. I need you to understand this is the best news you're ever going to hear and I I want to walk you through it step by step. Maybe it's because we don't really believe that they don't accept this they're not that much trouble so somewhere along the journey just like the exodus people 
just like the Ezra Nehemiah people, just like all people, everywhere, all the time, including those in the future, we come to this realization that we just like them. That we turn away from God again and again. So let's close here. How do we respond? How should we respond? Well, I think the first response is beautifully demonstrated for us in Ezra with deep humility. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Verse 10, but now our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken the commandments you gave through your servants. Verse 13, what has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve. Maybe, maybe you here this morning and you don't know Jesus. Can I encourage you that this is where you start? That this is the place that you start? Not in philosophy and you start off by saying, you can, you can pray, even if you don't know this Jesus, you can pray and say, God, would you show me what a sinner I am? It's not a common prayer, is it? It's not a comfortable prayer. But God, would you show me my guilt? Yes, I know about your father. I know about those other things that happened in your life. I know about those circumstances. I know about those terrible Christians. I know about that terrible church and what they did. I know that. But God, won't you show me me? Won't you get behind my defenses and, and show me me? And we have to, if we don't know this God, the place we start is to not just think of sin in a general kind of world sin and, you know, the guys in Syria or this going on in the world or that or this genocide or that thing happening, but, but to ask God, speak to me specifically, Lord. Show me my sin again. And I think the second response, if you don't know Christ, is to see His faithfulness and His grace. It's everywhere. It's not, the news is not, you're a sinner. The news is, you're a sinner, but one came to save you. That's the good, that's the good news. Ezra says it like this, But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in His sanctuary. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown us kindness in the sights of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins. And while this was not the salvation I'm talking about, it's, an, it's a pre-echo of the faithfulness and the grace of God to the people of Israel, which now extends into our lives. Do you remember the Romans 3 verse that I, I quoted just now, which is so offensive, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Here, here it is in a little bit more context. There's even a wider context, but I don't have time to read now. But verse 22, this righteousness, if you don't know Jesus, I'm encouraging you, this is the righteousness, is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile, which was the great argument of the day. For all have sinned. The Jews have sinned. The Gentiles have sinned. All of us, the Stellenboschers, the Somerset Westers, the Whites, the Blacks, the Afrikaners, the English, the Zulu, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now we, never, we often quote that without finishing the verse. Verse 24. And all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. When we preach this, when we, when we tell people all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, don't stop there. Don't stop with you're a sinner. 
You're a sinner, but all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Let me speak to you if you do know Christ, which would be the vast majority of you sitting here this morning. If you do know Christ, A, your first response, just like Israel, is to be humble in humility. We come before Him. But I think that out of that humility and out of dwelling on what we've been like comes a very beautiful dwelling on what Christ has done. You know, him who's been forgiven much, loves much. I think of Amazing Grace, that beautiful story of the man who was a slave trader who came to know Christ after trading tons and tons of people from the African coast into England and, and how he became this preacher and he wrote this amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. He was a man who had, who had dwelt upon the sinfulness of his heart who knew who he was. And so he knew this grace that abounded. And you don't have to have some jaded, terrible, addicted past. You know, sometimes because I was brought up in a Christian home, I used to sometimes think, I don't have a testimony like, you know, remember those the muscle guys used to come to school and like tear books? Did any of you ever have that? They tear like the phone book and like break bricks with their head. Just my school. <laughs> it was really awesome. If you haven't seen them. And I used to think like, but I don't have a testimony like that. I didn't do drugs and do all this other stuff and do that and do this. And, you know? and actually, the more I've, I've grown in Christ, the more I've realized that as we, as we spend time before Him, our sin becomes so apparent. It's like, it's like the deepest, darkest abyss. doesn't matter we didn't do some of the the more naughty things in the worldly views. It's terrible, my sin. And as I come before Christ and I reflect on it, this beauty of what He's done for me begins to well up inside of me. So I I think our chief response is gratitude. I think that's the place we should start every day. I think another huge practical response is, is, let me ask it like this, are you ever frustrated with your sin? Do you ever think, man, I'm just so sick of the same old sin and I just think I'm going to beat it this time and then I never do. And you, know, and, and you read scriptures and you're like, but I've given my life to Christ. Why am I still so full of sin? Why do I still struggle with this thing? How can I be walking in light and at the same time like feel so trapped by this web of darkness? Anyone? Shout it out. Amen. <laughs> I've got to do Ernie on you. You were here for the American preacher that we had, which was outstanding at the Barnabas. Such a great sermon. But some of this angst, practically, what I want you to hear is that some of you are walking in this and it's leading to condemnation. And it's leading to, to, to actually away from God. You're walking away from God because you just feel like, I can't beat this thing in my life. And part of the grace that we need to see is that in this angst, we need to realize that we're still part of a wilderness people. We're not, we're not there yet. We're not, we're not in heaven yet. We're still being sanctified. And so part of our journey is living in this sin. And so I, I remember a beautiful story about, you know, the preacher Charles Spurgeon. There was a man who stood up at a conference and said that he had attained sinless perfection, that he no longer sinned. And so the next morning in the breakfast hall, Charles Spurgeon walked up, unbeknown to this man, walked up behind him with a huge jug of milk and poured it over this man's head. And the man manifested, as you would when someone poured a jug of milk. And so Spurgeon said, I just wanted to test your theory from yesterday. And it's a beautiful story. 
Because all of us, all of us in our lives are walking this road with sinfulness close on our heels. And I think sometimes Christians, we wear this face. And we look at other people and we think, oh, they're not struggling with that. They've never been impatient in their life. They've never struggled in front of their computer. They've never, they've never, and we, and we look at everyone else and think that everyone else is doing great and we must just be the idiot in the room. So we hide what we're really feeling and we live with this perpetual feeling that we're drifting away from God. And I want to encourage you from this text that we are, it doesn't have to create this doubt and this wobbling feeling in our hearts. It can create even more gratitude, even deeper gratitude, even deeper thanks for our salvation as we realize that we are still walking sinfully and yet God still loves me. He still loves me when I get mad with my kids and I'm horrible to my wife and I do stupid things in my life every week. He still loves me. And so we walk in freedom while in the Holy Spirit fighting tooth and nail to say no to unrighteousness. I'm not encouraging any kind of licentiousness. Let's close with this. I think the last thing that really sits deep in our hearts is that we trust God. That we trust His Word. When He says this is the way, we don't say, God, but it doesn't make sense in my Western modern thinking. It doesn't make sense in what I'm hearing or reading or watching on TV. We say, God, we trust you. When we don't see, we trust you. When we don't get it yet, we trust you. That's not checking your brains out of the door. That's checking your brains out in God. It's a very different thing to a pastor saying, no, you've got to believe this because I want you to believe this is a church culture thing. This is saying, God, I don't get it, but man, I trust you. I trust you so, so deeply. We don't presume to be God, trusting what he says over and above what our culture says. Should we break bread together? Be a wonderful place just to land as we think of this response to him in gratitude. Father, Thank you. Let me pray for us. Thank you for what you've done through your son, Jesus, that we can remember this morning as we come to celebrate. God, there's people in such different spaces in the room this morning. Some of them have wandered far from you, Lord. Father, would even today, this moment, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the one I love. Would this be a moment where you whisper over their lives again and call them back? Call them back, not to just church attending or meetings, although those are good things, but God, that they'd be called back to your heart. Some people, Lord, I feel like there's people who've never truly got it. They're following you in some measure, but they've never truly grasped what you've done. Oh God, would you come and deepen, deepen for us the understanding of what you've done, the great freedom that you've, that you've won for us. We get so blasé about the cross and the blood and the bread and our sin, what you've done and Jesus died for us. God, we get so blasé. Would you come even this morning and just deeply work in us what you've done in our hearts, Lord? What this justification looks like, what it means, what it feels like to walk free from condemnation even though we still sin. Thank you for the example of Ezra. A man who's humble, a man who looks and sees 
the sins of the past generation and sees their own sins and owns it and yet still sees your faithfulness and your grace. I love you and we worship you, our King. Hey, while our our eyes are closed, I just want to ask if there's anybody here this morning, I don't do this often, but if there's anybody here who just resonates with what I'm saying now at the end, that you've walked far from God and you feel like you've known Him in the past and you've just walked a long road away from Him, that's the one person. And the other person is if you've never made a commitment to this King. You can never point to a moment in your life where you've said yes to Christ, not just in a, in a prayer kind of way and a, a prayer moment, but actually in a heart change moment where you've said yes, I'll put my faith in you and my life has changed because of that moment. If you haven't done that, or if you're feeling far from God, can I ask you just to raise your hand and I'd love to pray with you this morning. Thank you. Father, so you see hands that were lifted physically and you see hearts where maybe hands have been too embarrassed or too shy to lift themselves, God, but you can see a cry of a young man or a young woman or an older person's heart here this morning, God. And Father, we want to ask that by your Holy Spirit you would start a work in them so deep and so enduring that they would know that they would know that you have rescued them and saved them and forgiven them of every sin. That they stand justified, righteous before you. That one day on that judgment day, you will declare over them their name and righteous, not condemned, set free. Father, where those doubts linger in hearts, even believers' hearts, God, who are not assured, by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you come and do that assuring work. Do that deep work that only you can do in their hearts. In the name of Jesus.